have never seen anything like this before. But the same core principles are the same. We're going to have to feed the world. Okay, we're going to have to continue the cycle of business. You know, if you really understand money, truly nothing happened. Okay, you know, GDP is an, I know I'm going to be attacked very heavily for this. GDP is an artificial measure of something that actually means almost nothing. Okay, so Mo Gorda, welcome to Secret Leaders, and a pleasure to have you here. I'm sad we're not doing this face to face, but you know we're we're building up rapport as we go. So how are you, my friend? I'm doing very well. You will owe me a coffee after that, but uh, I, I'll, I I think I'll function fine today without it. So you say that, it's, but it's, you say that, but you actually owe me a coffee because you've bragged so much about your incredible coffee making skills that there is no I, way that I can match that. I still say uh, probably one of the best coffees you'll have in London. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's the best, but I really do it with a lot of... Uh, to me, coffee is, a, is, is like a lot of the things I do. I really dove deep and understood a lot about it. And I, it's a big passion for me. And coffee could be just your just shot of caffeine or could be your meditation moment in the morning. So it really means a lot to me. Yeah. Yours, yours, yours is a uh, highly, highly acclaimed by yourself. So until I, I, feel like <laughs> I need to well. prove, I need exactly, to prove. Exactly. There's absolutely no way I'm just letting you, letting it slide and you pretend that it's amazing without me finding out as well. So we're not actually going to start at coffee. You're not a coffee entrepreneur. You're not uh, Howard Schultz, but you are a very accomplished, multidisciplinary, I would say, entrepreneur. And the high-level things that people know you for, realistically, of course, is your amazing movement, One Billion Happy. You're a fantastic author, obviously, with the word business in it, the chief business officer of of Google X, but a lot more. And I think when we met, the part of the story that really interested me a lot was actually your background in the Middle East and um, mm-hmm. and the story, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, from Egypt? From Egypt, yes. Fantastic. So just to prove mm-hmm. that I was listening when we chatted, <laughs> I think it'd be really interesting to just get a bit of understanding of how someone who started over 25 businesses, yes, that is right, guys, 25 plus, where that all comes from and where you started up in life and, and where your initial experiences of entrepreneurship came from, please. Thanks for setting me up for disappointment for everyone. <laughs> I, I'll try to live up to the expectations. I, uh, I did start, I, I say more than 25 because sometimes when I count them, they're more, really. I mean, I started so many businesses and that doesn't mean that all of them fail, succeeded. I, I, I counted seven that succeeded. I think it's because of a, dra- a brain defect, to be honest, Dan. So, so to me, I, there were parts of my brain that never really feared things. So I never really feared failure at all. I just jumped. Every idea that came to me that I found passion to build, I just I enjoyed the process of building it. And some of them died very quickly in weeks, and some of them died you know, in agony in two or three years of work. But every time I felt that I could build something that would make a difference, and it was never really about the money, I just tried to make it. And, and I think the thing that really made a, a, a difference to me is I never started anything alone ever in my life. I always uh, recognized very, very strongly that there are a few things that I do really, really well and a few things that I do horribly bad. And, and so by respecting the fact that there are others that do those things really well, I always ended up founding things with others. And most of the time what I founded was run by the others because one of the things I don't enjoy doing, even though I've done it many times in my life, is to run a boring business. So when, when a business becomes boring, to me, that's really not something I, I stay and, and, and continue to do. I started in Egypt. Uh, I, was, um, I was educated in a public school and a public university in Egypt. And uh, so you could say I'm not really educated at all. But then I, I loved, loved, loved mathematics and physics to a point where I was being made fun of. I could manage to make a lot of money in the stock market. And so when, when money was not an issue for me anymore, uh, I could take risks and I could do things as if I didn't care. And when you're an entrepreneur, I think that really, really matters. And, and so I started things and I, and I had the ride of my life. Uh, you know, it, it was just incredible for me. Well, I mean, take us through highlights of that ride up until, you know, up until... Google, realistically, which, you know, is, I guess, the 
most obvious place to sort of uh, pause and take a moment to, and, and take stock with your journey. So take us through the ride until there. So I, I actually never started anything when I was not working full time, believe it or not, until the last few years after I left Google. So, I'm, you know, and part, a big part of my career in entrepreneurship, which I don't talk about as entrepreneurship, is I did two things at Google that were quite entrepreneurial. I started uh, more, more than half of Google or close to half close to half of Google offices and businesses worldwide, which meant that I was the executive that was really you know, getting Google to 110 languages across the world, serving four, 4 billion new people, which might not have been building a new business, but it was really building all of those new geographies. And I, I felt it was in, an incredible privilege because getting Google to a country is really something that shifts the reality of life in that country. And then I was the chief business officer of Google X and all of those businesses that you saw come out of X, you know, Verily and, and Waymo and, uh, you know, self-driving cars and the health business and Project Loon for communication and so on and so forth. And many, many others that were really never publicized but were integrated in Google somehow. Those were really some of my probably proudest startups if you want because you start from something from nothing with a very crazy idea with a team of brilliant 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 people who have no clue what the real world is like uh, and and so me being the businessman I'm also a bit of a technologist but definitely much more of a businessman would try to start shaping something into uh, you know, a product that actually meets the real world. And some of those were incredible for me. I, I started with my very first business was a carpentry workshop, just because I absolutely adore carpentry. And I graduated from university. Uh, I had a three-month period where I didn't know if I was going to be, uh, you know, enrolled in the army or not, which is mandatory, a mandatory service in, in Egypt. So until I found out, I couldn't sit still. So I started a business. And I am still today, I'm, I'm a reasonably good carpenter and I, I really do a lot of things with my hands. But at the time, within three months, it was a very profitable, successful business. And I was uh, in love with my college sweetheart and we wanted to get married. And there was that big story of, do I want to really go and work for a company at all? And, you know, or do I want to, to continue to do this business that is very profitable, but not so prestigious if you want? Of course, as you can imagine, to impress her uh, father, I worked for IBM and father was impressed. Great. I got, uh, you know, the biggest gift of my life, which was my ex, which was an incredibly amazing woman. But then through uh, working at IBM, which is really anti, it's very, a very disciplined place to work, which is really anti my character, which is to invent and shake things and so on. I ended up starting several businesses while I was at IBM, mostly little software startups at the time. There was no real retail software in, in Egypt in Arabic, so I started a bit of that. I started with the early waves of the internet to build HTML and you know web businesses and so on, until I moved to Dubai, and that's where I really started to go a little bigger. I, most of my businesses were in food and beverage, uh, in fitness, in real estate, and so on which were businesses that uh, did not have any conflict of interest with my current job at the time, which would either, uh, you know, I moved from IBM to Microsoft and then to Google. And I continued to do this. I continued to do them just because I was fascinated by them. And, and I had several partners that worked together, you know, with me and we, we worked together several times. So we tried several attempts together. And so it became almost like a, a habit it's like it's uh, you would i would expect farid one of my partners that i worked with four times to show up every year and a half to three years and say hey i have this crazy new idea and i knew it the minute he sat down that ah oh, we're starting something again right i think my current businesses are probably the ones that i'm proudest of if you want uh, they're not fully successful yet but they hold the promise of being very successful if we survive COVID-19, which are not only businesses I'm passionate about, but they are businesses that have the potential to change the way we do things. We'll come on to that. Um, I, I promise we'll definitely ask you about those businesses. But you said something just a moment ago that really made me curious, which is one of you would basically come up with a new idea every year and a half or two, and, and you felt like it was the start of something new, almost definitely. What is your selection process like? Because 25 businesses 
is a lot. Obviously, there are going to be successes and failures. So yeah. my questions for you are, how do you validate what a good, what a good business worth your time is? And how have you validated businesses worth killing? So I, I never validated a business more than I validated a partner. I think business, when it really comes down to the nitty gritties, is all the same. Okay. We sell it to entrepreneurs as exciting because, you know, after the envisioning stage, what really matters is the idea of, of how you can actually execute on it. And execution is boring. Okay. What really matters more than the idea is the partner. Okay. It's the people that you choose that you know are so different than you that they could be really annoying because everything they do is almost the opposite of what you want to do. But they're so genuine and so uh, valuable to you that you can acknowledge to yourself with humbleness that you're an idiot when it comes to what they know what they're doing. Okay? And if you find those people, in all honesty, it doesn't really matter what business you start because every business can be fun. Every business can have an impact. Every business can be a new idea and innovative. Whatever it is, you can take something as boring as fitness and make it innovative. Okay? Uh, you know, it's not just buying a few machines and put, putting them in a gym. You can actually make it fun and exciting and different and fit for the market. And, you know, there is a lot of excitement in that. It's the people. It's the people that I always made a choice on. And it's the people that mostly, by the way, were the reasons why my businesses were shut down. Okay? So you can very, very quickly... I, I always say that the top two reasons for a business to fail in its early stages is either bleeding to death, which is cash flow, or a disagreement between partners or a mismatch between partners to the point where partners will end up sooner or later draining the business to death, okay? Tra draining the business of time and effort to death. And so very quickly, some of those businesses, you realize oh, it's just not going to work. It's, you know, it's we're wonderful human being, very smart, very intelligent, very good at what they're doing, but we're wasting hours and hours and hours and hours talking about stuff that doesn't matter. Okay, and and if that's there, then you you kill it very very quickly. Otherwise, there are of course death with natural causes. Okay, you know natural causes are uh, you know like like the phase we're going through now with COVID nineteen. Many many incredibly brilliant businesses are struggling to survive. Right. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes the world works against you. Sometimes you're too early. Sometimes you didn't develop the idea properly. And, and I think the trick of a successful entrepreneur is to realize that your product is not the company you're building. The, your product is you, is your ability to build companies. That's what you're developing. Right. You know, what, what are we creating? Entrepreneurs were just basically playing the arbitrage of intellectual horsepower. That's what we do. We, we find clever ideas, then we partner with clever people and we hire clever people. And we just take a certain amount of intelligence and we sell that for more than what we paid for it. That's, that's really what an entrepreneur is doing. And the most, and you know, the most successful ones, and I've always been fascinated with this ever since reading Ray Dalio's principles, is the ones that systemize it the best are the ones that win. Absolutely. Of course, as the entrepreneur, you need to be able to step away, and especially it sounds like in your businesses. So with 25 plus, uh, do you have a tally? Do you, do you have a rough idea of how many have been successful, how many? Seven, 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 seven survived. And they, they, they are not Europe-scale businesses. They're quite big in the countries where they started. And uh, yeah, they still survive today. And they're still a nice form of income. And I'm still on the board. And I show up every now and then. And, you know, it's, it's fun. Uh, but then, of course, as you can imagine, the bug hits you. And then you start again and you start again and you start again. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanter. Just head to vanter.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So obviously the, the, there's many different stories for an entry level, for a, let's say you were doing a, a course on Mogordat. There's many different, many different ways that you can study Mogordat. Uh, one of them is, of course, the business side. And one is, I guess, the much more philosophical side to you, which has been shaped, of course, by your life experience. And for anyone that doesn't yet know about your, I guess, most meaningful contribution to society being Solve for Happy, I would love you just to go into the, the reason why it exists and mm. the impact that you've made, the scale of your ambition, and I guess you know the impetus and the direction that that is still going in at the moment it would be fantastic just to to cover off if you don't mind. A story yeah, you've told I, a thousand times, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I, but but I think I I would probably tell it a little differently this time because I, I I'd like to start from the idea of how we measure success, and you know, like everyone who's interested in business, we measure success normally by titles and recognition and sometimes awards and mostly financial, uh, uh, you know, gain. And I've had the, the the fortune of getting those things very early in life. And none of them actually felt uh, rewarding for my state of happiness. At a, at a later stage in life, I realized that success um, doesn't happen for things that are really, really important in our world. Because the models that we follow to measure those things, like our environmentalist effort or people who are attempting to spread compassion, for example, and, and you know, NGOs around the world, are less successful than businesses because they're not motivated by the same success factors that business people are. They're not running the same process that business people are. Those two parts of my life came together, uh, I think, in a, in a tragic moment in 2014. So I, I worked like most of us who chased success to achieve money and wealth and all of that at the beginning. I failed to find happiness completely. So I searched for my happiness for 12 years in a very engineered way. And then I was tested in 2014 when my teacher actually and my coach and my son and my best friend Ali left our world because of a a human error. So, so a surgeon did five mistakes in a very, very simple operation, and I lost Ali. And so I lost my son and found myself in a place where I was forced to think about what actually matters. And what actually matters is you could, I could build another business that could make another million dollars or whatever, or I could actually start to see that maybe life was putting me in a corner where I should contribute something different. And so I, I, of course, was not in my typical, logical, composed self. When you lose a child, it's the hardest, hardest thing you'll ever have to go through. It's, it still hurts today, six years later, exactly as much as it hurts the day he left. 
but then I, I was sent a message by his sister about a dream that Ali had, uh, which was that he was everywhere and, uh, and part of everyone. He said, I was everywhere and part of everyone. It felt so amazing. I didn't want to go back to my, to my body. That was his dream. And to my weird brain, when I heard his sister tell me that, I took it as an objective. Just like a typical businessman. Okay, so the target is everywhere and part of everyone. And so I can make you part of everyone, my son. My son. I, I, he meant everything to me. I, wo I worked at Google at the time, so I knew how to scale things to billions. And so I decided, you know what? I'm just going to write down what you told me, which is really the work we did together on happiness. I'm going to share it with the world. I'm going to find some way on the internet to make you part of everyone. Now, my math brain at the time said, if I could get him and his message to go to 10 million people through six degrees of separation over 20 to 60 years, you're logically going to make him part of everyone because 10 million people are going to spread that across the years to others. And it was sort of me sandbagging the target, if you want. Okay? And so Soul for Happy was released. It was completely from the heart. It was completely an engineer's way of of talking about happiness in a very structured way, but infused with Ali's spirit and his beauty and his, you know, wisdom in so many ways. And so that mix worked. Within six weeks, we had reached 87 million views on, uh, on the internet. And, you know, we're not measuring views because views is a, is a cheat, really. We're measuring views that take action. So, so people who actually get the message and then act upon it we say, okay, maybe they will not reach happiness, but at least we have made them want to reach happiness and do the work that is needed, or we've given them the compassion to make others happy. And so the team, we were at a small team of four people at the time, got together and said, you're sandbagging the target. It was 10 million happy at the time. Uh, we need a bigger target. And so Again, in my typical uh, Google-like thinking, I was like, okay, let's go from 10 million to a billion, right? And I was standing in, uh, we were, uh, I was going to make a speech in an event in the Netherlands, in, uh, in uh, Rotterdam at the time, 10,000 people in the audience. The team pressured me and said, you should tell them about a billion happy. And so, whoop, on stage, you know, six months after the book came out, we were committing to a billion happy. Now, a billion happy is actually not a crazy dream. Believe it or not, it's actually quite doable. And if we manage to achieve it, then I would probably tell you that's the best startup I have ever, ever started. And, and I, you know, I, I said publicly sometimes that if by the end of my life I've lost every dollar I've ever made and died, I died completely forgotten but managed to make a billion people happy or at least show people a, a billion people a path to happiness, then that's probably a life worth living. So let's talk about that for a moment, because it's understandably, if you don't have the context, you haven't read your book, you don't know you like I do at the moment, you know, like having these conversations and, and, and having unpacked this over many hours with good fortune, it could actually be quite grating to hear some guy say, all you've got to do is tell what two more people to be happy and everyone would be happy, right? As in, that just sounds like yeah. bullshit. Um, yeah. You're obviously not saying that at all. There's a process, there's some logic to it. Could you give us some, some brief insight? Because of course, it, you know, people want to follow up and understand Mo has dedicated a lot of his life to this understanding of how to spread happiness. So it isn't just a wishful thinking, don't worry, there's proper science in it. However, it would be really helpful for you just to share some of the, the insights just so people get a feel for it. So just because we're a business podcast, I'm going to zoom through this, right? And I think everyone's smart enough to, um, to follow, and, and there is a lot of resources on, uh, on, online. The main assumption here is that happiness is not found outside you. You were born happy. You were born happy because no child, you know, infant has ever cried over not having an Xbox or that someone, you know, didn't give them a like on their butt shot on the internet. Their butts are really, really weird looking in those diapers. But every, but the, every child, if they're fed safe and given their basic needs for survival, our default setting as humans is happy. Okay, we grow out of happiness. We grow out of happiness because there are in external influences that make us unhappy. Similarly to our default setting is healthy and then we get germs or we do crazy things and we break our bones and then we're not healthy. It's because of external uh, factors. Now, if 
happiness is within us and our default setting is happy, then all we really need to do is to remove unhappiness. Happiness is the absence of unhappiness. To remove unhappiness is actually a very predictable process. Okay, It's very predictable across the history of spirituality and spiritual teachings and so on. Right, it is very predictable as you know in in my work as per an equation. Okay, unhappiness happens when not when life gives you something in specific. It's when life gives you something that doesn't match your wishes from life. No event has ever made you happy or unhappy. Okay, what makes you happy or unhappy is a comparison between that event and how you would have wanted things to be. Okay, so rain never makes you happy or unhappy. Rain makes you very happy if you're a farmer and you want to water your plants. Rain makes you very unhappy if you're in the park and you want to suntan, right? No inherent value of happiness in rain itself. Now, if you start to think about it this way, you would then say the reason for our unhappiness is not what life is giving us. It is the way we're analyzing what life is giving us. Either we see the events not for what they are, or we set expectations that are not realistic, and then when we do the comparison between them, we fail to find happiness. Now, with that in mind, happiness becomes really predictable. It's actually a very highly engineered process. Now, of course, people will go like, what are you talking about? It's been so elusive for me. Yes, just like fitness is so elusive for some of us, hmm? and you have all of those fitness experts out there telling you, oh, you need to do this, it needs to be that, you need to do only 30% angular, or of course, they make it overcomplicated, but what is fitness all about? Eat healthy, work out three to four times a week. That's it, right? Similarly, happiness is make it your priority and learn, right? If you make it your priority and learn, very quickly you will find out the contributors to your unhappiness. If you weed them out of your life, you become happy. So that was what Solve for Happy was all about. It was simply a model that we called 675, Right? which was six grand illusions that make you see the world not for what, you know, set expectations that are not realistic, seven blind spots in your brain that make you see the world for, not, for, for something that it is not, okay? and five truths that you can align to to find happiness consistently. Now, because it's predictable and highly simplified and highly engineered, it worked. Okay? And because it worked, then the message became, I'm not trying to invent anything. I'm just trying to get a lot more people to understand those concepts. And that is a game that the internet can play very, very easily. Okay? But I shied away from using the internet, even though it was very straightforward for me to create a few fancy videos with backgrounds behind me, like a lot of the inspirational speakers do, and spread that on the internet, even by advertising them, because if I had done that, I wouldn't have built the foundation for an actual happiness movement that outlasts me or outlasts the British media attacking me or outlasts the mistake that I'm doing in my life. I shouldn't be the center of this. And actually, one of the things I'm really proud of is that I'm not really that well known. Okay? This mission needs to succeed by people, a million champions, reaching a billion happy and I'm getting totally forgotten. Now, because success is measured in my mind differently, that is success. Success is not about me being known that to, to have made a difference. I don't want to be known as I made a difference. I want the difference to happen. I spoke a lot, but I want to conclude with one thing on this topic, which is really important. A lot of what I learned about happiness comes from entrepreneurship, comes from the idea that we as entrepreneurs are aware and expecting that things will go wrong, okay? That you can never start a business that is so easy, that life is bound to throw things at you that are gonna miss your expectations. And a lot of the techniques I use are techniques that entrepreneurs are very comfortable impl implementing. Huh? The way we engage with problems, the way we compare expectations to events and reality by using actual data, the way we look at the world for exactly what it is, the way we react by taking action, these, believe it or not, just like they're the, the key to be a successful entrepreneur, they're also the key to finding happiness consistently. Just moving on, I'm really, I'm really interested. Obviously, you've started a lot of businesses that are, you know, purpose, profit, curiosity, a whole variety of things. What's it been like creating a foundation then? <laughs> 
I resisted for a very long time. I, I basically, my team insisted that we create a foundation. Uh, we don't raise money. I spend my money. I, I, so I, we have onebillionhappy.org, and I, I basically spend my investments into onebillionhappy.org. And we don't spend that much, by the way. It's not a big deal. It's the, 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 the purpose of the foundation is to say we're going to do those things without profit. Okay? And it's actually a very difficult balance huh? because I'm also an author. So, you know, when I sell Soul for Happy, I do make royalties. Huh? And so, you know, how can I get Soul for Happy to people without making money? I need a, a foundation to do that. How do I build, for example, uh, you know, I'm working on one of the startups I'm working on now is, an, is a happiness app. Very, very intelligent happiness app. Huh? Of course, any entrepreneur in the world will tell you giving that away for free is not a clever idea. Hmm? You need to build a business, a capitalist Except system that drives uh, no, but they're not giving it away for free. I always said, you know, Google was the most profitable nonprofit on the planet, right? By giving away search for free, we were making so much money on ads, right? And the trick is, okay, so that app is, has to have a bit of a subscription model and a revenue-making sustainable model for it to continue forever and make the employees happy and so on. But at the same time, there needs to be a model for that app to be given away for free because happiness shouldn't be restricted to people that have money. And so that's when One Billion Happy would come in and say, you want it for free, ask for a scholarship, we'll give you an immediate one, right? You know, if I develop an online training, I spent a long time doing it and then I wasn't happy with the quality of the product, but I'll do it again. If I develop that online training and put it online, it has to be associated with a payment, right? But then if you don't want to pay, you should click and be able to go to One Billion Happy and get it for free. So One Billion Happy here is the reminder, if you want, that we will do things that are not... Uh, for profit and that, that this is an important cornerstone of spreading this message. By the way, there is another cornerstone, which is the for profit. Huh? So if the book reaches half a million people because of the structures of the capitalist uh, you know, world and that makes half a billion people happy, then that's a, a part of the, of the strategy that needs to be included. Hmm? And then the, the, the bigger game would be, and how do we get others included? Okay, so if Solve for Happy is about my work and, you know, my future books and all of the franchise of that content and logic and so on, how about the work of His Holiness the Dalai Lama? How about the work of, uh, you know, of um, Karen Guggenheim in, in the World Happiness Summit? How do we include all of that? And that's where One Billion Happy comes in and says, we don't care about Solve for Happy. We actually can contradict Solve for Happy and disagree with it. As long as we can work with Action for Happiness, for example, a fabulous organization here in the UK to spread happiness. Huh? And it's that crazy entrepreneur mentality. I think you're very good at that with your work on the podcast being nonprofit and your high, you know, work on heights being for profit and so on. The whole idea of siloing in your brain hmm, where your passion and value system is and divide, taking that, protecting it from the capital system Okay, and then at the same time, get yourself paid and get yourself free and capable and powerful and connected hmm, because you're playing the capitalist game reasonably well. Have you named the happiness app yet? And if not, can you just call it happiness? <laughs> oh my god, all right. I, would you have a? I didn't think of that. We're going... You should get Guy Ritchie to do a trailer for it. So it's like Cockney happiness. And just... <laughs> I have my meeting with my, my co founder tomorrow. I'm going to ask for go. that name. Take care. Do, do, Take do, care. Do, do you charge copyright for the creativity? No, it's a gift to you, my friend. Oh, thank you so much. I need to to uh, to book this right now before, before the podcast is, uh, is released. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so let's come on. Let's come on to your your current businesses. So, uh, what are they? I mean, one of them particularly. I remember you telling me that you started with the co-founder of Avocado, uh, yeah. which sounds outrageous. I'd love to know. Um, well, I mean, right. I do know, but I'd love you to share that story with uh, with the audience and what the the vision is behind it. The way you describe it is just so motivating. It really, it really is. It really is. And, and I, again, it's, I mean, one of the topics I probably want to talk about is how lucky I've, I've, I've been through my life. Uh, Jonathan Feynman's one of the original co-founders of Ocado, wonderful human being. So on the, on the test of co-founder, completely meets my criteria, right? We're reasonably good friends before we started working together. And he is the opposite of me. 
like in almost every single way he would do things. We're totally opposites, but we have so much love and respect for each other that we constantly can get together and get things done. So Jonathan, after, uh, you know, left, left Ocado, uh, you know, focused on other things for 10 years of his life and then came to me one day, I was uh, teaching a course in the south of France. He showed up and he said, I really have to tell you about this, you know, this is what's happening, this is how the technology is going, this is not where it should be going, I really need to get back into this and build something amazing. I was like, yeah, Jonathan, you should do this. At the time I had, you know, retired from Google for four months or so, I was not planning to go back into business at all. And I was like encouraging him. He really had incredibly clever ideas. And I was like, yeah, do that. Grocery delivery, that's great. You can have that as your passion. It's not mine, but hey, go ahead, do it, right? And so Jonathan went ahead and developed things and partnered with people and really built an interesting architecture to how you would rebuild e-commerce if you were to build it 25 years later, okay? I helped because of my technology background. I know nothing about retail. So I walk in and I talk about things like network topologies and how things, you know, navigate across the streets and stuff that we learn from moving packets around the internet, okay? And, you know, together we would develop incredible ideas, but he's my friend. I'm just saying, hey, let's do that stuff. It's amazing for the world. Until one day I came here to London to help him with a business deal. And basically I had the ticket 6th of May, arrivals, 11th of May, departure. And he, I think, knew how to catch me. So, we, we, you know, we were working on something. And then he said, you know that this has the chance of changing the world, a chance to change the world. And I was like, how? And he said a very interesting thing. And I say that with a ton of respect to a lot of, you know, retailers around the world. He said, look, you can cut the reasons for the environmental disasters we have in the world in whichever way you want. You can say aeroplanes are polluting more than ships or the other way around. You can say, you know, Pepsi is, is a little more responsible than Coke. It doesn't really matter. If you take a top view of consumerism, okay, consumerism is destroying our planet, okay? And consumerism is destroying our planet simply because consumerism evolved through incremental innovations over the years hmm, rather than basically go through moonshots, you know, what I call deliberate innovations that would change the playing field. And the biggest part of consumerism is that the fulfillment networks, you know, from end to end are so inefficient because they, you know, they just were upgraded over time. And that if you reinvent the way consumerism happens, you could completely change the way packaging is happening. You could completely change the way uh, uh, vehicles are used. You can use a lot more electric vehicles for, for all of the logistics networks. You can uh, completely eliminate waste, which is so enormous in food. A third of everything you, you, you get at home is waste. And it's not just the waste of the food. It's the waste of the energy that was used to move it, to farm it, the energy that was used to package it, to put it in the retail, your energy to go and pick it from retail, your energy to bring it back, and then the energy used to take that waste and put it in the landfills. And it's just, just an enormous, 30%. And you can remove that. Uh, you can completely eliminate single-use plastic if you change the, the, uh, the packaging, right? And I'm not saying we're going to build this because it would be too arrogant to say that. But I'm saying like every other successful entrepreneurial uh, endeavor ever, we probably will be able to show different ways that things can be done so that our competitors would hammer us with the same ways. And in together, we would change the way things are done. Okay, so if, if I could find that a slightly more creative way of moving things around that saves us 30% energy, I'm guessing every other player will want to save 30% energy, so they'll compete with us. Okay, and as they compete with us, the whole world moves forward. And hopefully, we would have enough market share, you know, tiny, just tiny, for us to be successful and happy and continue to innovate. But the idea, he got me completely. It's like, totally, if we fix consumerism, we fix the planet. Right. And so I've been putting a year of my life in this and it's been incredible. So this was, I was just literally about to ask, this has been the last year, correct? Yes. Um, and you haven't had to raise any funds because I guess he has the funds. We funded together and because we also didn't. So, so the problem with 
But we're going to raise funding, okay, at the right time. There are two sides to funding, and I, you're, you know, I'm sure you're very aware of this. Funding loses you influence, okay? And accordingly, if you're really crazy and if you really want to set something very different, the more you delay your funding until you can actually show it to the, to, to the investors and say, look, I'm not just an idealistic, stupid dreamer. I'm actually building something amazing. Look at it. It's very profitable, but it also fixes the planet. Hmm? The later, the better. But also funding in general, you'd be stupid to raise funds that you're not using. Okay, because basically it's you give away more equity. So at the right moment in an, in, an, in the evolution of a startup is the moment where you're about to run out of business, and that's when you need to get the funds in. And if you know, it's always that balancing act of how quickly are you going to give in and get the funds in versus how long you will stay and keep the equity of your company. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Can you remind me what the name of the company is? We call it today. You're not going to find anything about it on the internet. It's today with a zero. Uh, again, because remember, the idea is not to be publicly successful and, and, and famous. The idea is to get the, the work done. And what, is a, what does a day typically look like in today for both of you? And, you know, who's working on it? How many people? Um, and how's that changed during COVID? And then let's, let's talk about yeah. how you're planning to, to, to live your new life through COVID. COVID has been so interesting. Uh, so for, on one side, we are in, in building very, very efficient logistics networks, right? In building uh, last mile and fulfillment centers and, and enabling e-commerce. So COVID has been truly a, a wake-up call for retailers around the world saying, oh my God, we need to be in this. Right. So there is quite a bit of workload that comes from this. On the other side, of course, there is that entire adjustment of how do you operate on something that is so driven by the brains of the team that you have hmm, when suddenly you no longer are with them in the same physical space. Okay? And, and it's really quite interesting because I, I, I operated most of my life, you know, since I think 1998. Uh, 1996. Uh, I've never really managed a business in the country that I was in only. I, I was always managing businesses in countries all over the world, right? And so, you know, when I ran Google, for example, emerging markets, I ran that from Dubai. And so the UAE or Dubai was one office out of 50 some offices that I'm managing. And the idea of working remotely was something that I was very comfortable with. What do you think about Generally, you know, you've, you've, like I say, run different businesses in different industries of different sizes, for sure, um, including, mm -hmm. you know, pretty much the biggest in the world. What do you think about this kind of this this time and, and that we're living through and how that impacts the different kind of businesses, you know, hmm. without without, yeah, without giving too much more color to the question, just like really philosophically, like what are your what are your perspectives? So, so the truth is we're here after 1937. The truth is we're here after 1987. The truth is we're here after the 2008. None of them came easy. None of them vanished immediately. None of them left us with the same world that we had before them. You know, Black Swans and Nassim Talib's work is a great example of what we're going through. Our world is going to flip upside down. It's not going to end. None of the examples you gave, did you have things like, you know, oil being worth less than zero and stock market prices, you know, rising and rising while so much of what's actually on there actually being worth nothing. I mean, it's just have you, have you, have you ever out the window. Have you ever played Tetris? I have played Tetris. Yeah. I thought you were going to ask a much harder question. I was going to... <laughs> yeah, my, life is a video game to me. So, so at, the, at, the, at the later levels of, of Tetris, the blocks come down much quicker and they're a lot more confusing and you really have to be good at what you're doing. Every, every crisis we faced was a little more interesting and a little more complex than the one before, okay? Simply because we are a little more prepared to deal with it than the one before. If it wasn't more complex, the game wouldn't be interesting, okay? Now, this is unprecedented in so many ways, huh? in so many ways. We have never seen anything like this before. But the same core principles are the same. Hmm? The same core principles are, we're going to have to feed the world, okay? We're going to have to continue the cycle of business. Hmm? You, you know, if you really understand money, truly nothing happened. 
okay? You know, GDP is an, I, I, I'm, I know I'm gonna be attacked very heavily for this. Huh? GDP is an artificial measure of something that actually means almost nothing. Okay? What really matters is that you and I eat, we, you and I have a shelter on our heads, you and I have a job, and so on and so forth. These are the measures that matter. Okay? The measures that matter are unemployment, average income, can we have the economic uh, uh, purchasing power to keep people alive? That's what matters. Now, GDP, stock market prices, this is stuff for the, for the rich people to measure their successes. Okay? It doesn't impact on the normal person in their day-to-day -day life. Now, when you think about economies this way, and not, you don't think about money, but think about purchasing power. When you think about, uh, you know, you don't think about wealth, but think about a sort of livelihood and so on and so forth. Yeah, we always balance out. We always balance out. And it's not without difficulty, by the way. I'm not underplaying the enormity of what we're going to have to go through, simply because the systems that we've built are not geared to be that flexible when airlines are, are laying off people and, and you know, grounding planes and so on and so forth. But the truth is, after a bit of harshness, like every other economic crisis, we're going to come back. Okay? And the game of how do we come back and how do you as a person deal with coming back, I think that's truly the question. I think the way that you just expressed the reality of the, some of the finality is really poetic because again you know we discussed this just earlier before we we started recording but sometimes you're stuck with your business mm -hmm. and there are a lot of people and i don't mean this to say it insensitively but there are a lot of people who have tried a business it's fucking embarrassing to fail a business you wouldn't choose to fail it ever and something like COVID is honestly just an amazing excuse. Absolutely, it's your best excuse ever. Work, like, it yeah. just, and then no one would ever judge you. Like, you know, I, <laughs> I failed. I got judged, fair enough. Yeah. But failing during COVID, like, everyone, well, Jesus Christ, like, Virgin might fail during COVID. So go figure. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's, so that's basically flipping the, the, the coin and looking at the other side. Hmm? Now, I'll, I'll tell you openly, I am a failure junkie. Now, we, all of us humans, and I will say that with, I know a lot of people will dislike me, with all of the challenges we're having with COVID, every person I know is becoming a better human. Every person I know is reflecting, is learning, is readjusting, fine-tuning, doing things differently and asking themselves questions. Every person I know is connecting with others. Every person I know, like you rightly said now, you can, you can, people understand if you don't shake their hands. People understand when you're walking to the supermarkets and you smile to them, they smile back. It's amazing. It's amazing, right? And that's why, because we're going through a tough patch of the game. When we go through the tough patches, that's the time where resilience takes us to the point where you go like, I can do better than this. I can be tougher than this. I can be a better gamer. Having to wrap it up, sadly, because, you know, I could talk with you for hours, but I would love, you know, usually I ask for, you know, what's an inspiring quote that you want to leave your people, etc. I think that would actually be the wrong thing to ask you to share. I think what I would rather is seeing as this is going to go out whilst, whilst COVID is going on, people are locked inside and entrepreneurs are having to figure out a lot of things. What do you think are the best questions people should be asking of themselves and their businesses right now? I think that uh, the idea here is that there is so much hype, hmm? so much negativity sometimes, because negativity sells and, and we, we understand it better as humans, that the real question we need to ask is what is the truth? Okay, What is the truth of COVID-19, 200,000 deaths around the world in a species that loses 73 million people every year? Mortality rate 800, of humanity. 000, and 800,000 due to mental health diseases. There you go. St st stress and fear and... So, yeah, yeah. Now, the, I'm not under, undermining 200,000 lives. is a lot of lives. We love those humans. Huh? But understand, it's, it's highlighted to you. It feels bigger because it's in the spotlight. Find the truth. Hmm? The truth is hmm, we are going to have to go back economies are going to have to start again. Is it six weeks? Is it two weeks? Is it seven weeks? Might be different, but th this is the truth. The truth is hmm, there are people suffering. 
So do you, do you want to have the, fire, the compassion in you to help? So one of the truths that I spoke about on my podcast, for example, is the idea that while some of us have lost income, most of us have lost expenses. Okay? So for all of us, it's so much cheaper to live. You don't have to commute. You don't go to dinners. You don't spend on this. You don't do that. It's, it's so much cheaper. Huh? And so can you, are you able to share some of that saving that you had with another a friend that you know lost their jobs or their salaries were cut to 30%? Right? This is for us as humans. Now, as businesses, understand hmm, that business is just a fit between you and the environment in which you operate. Okay, so all success of every business you've ever heard of was made up of two things, a brilliant idea and good execution on one side and an environment that was fit for that business at the other side. Okay, when the environment changes, don't be stupid. Okay, seriously, tell yourself, is this the environment that I can succeed in? And if it isn't, pivot. We all pivot all the time. Every business, I do not know of many businesses that started at something and ended at that same thing, okay? So so question becomes, with the truth of what's happening, what's the best I can get? I call that committed acceptance. What, what's the best I could get, not wishing for things to be different, but knowing that things are as they are, okay? And with that in mind, somehow I will tell you, maybe... Maybe it's just a question of position yourself in the right corner and wait. It's not going to be that long. Okay? And from there, when things open up, it's all about timing. Run like mad. Okay? Build another one, build the right one, uh, re revive your, your current uh, business, or just chill and take a few weeks off. All of it, unfortunately, nature of the game of life, hmm? all of it is uh, you know, cyclical. All of it is going to be going from tough to easy, then back to tough, and then back to easy. And then throughout life, the better gamer that you are, the better you'll be able to deal with all of it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Mo. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. It's been always a pleasure. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top there will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow search for mindset win on youtube and on your favorite podcast app we hope you enjoyed this episode it was brought to you by me dan murray serta producer rich martell Editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts and our upcoming live events on our website SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we will add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.